0: But the truth is, most people have no idea what they really have because they never really look at it in detail. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today, I have with me Debbie Morizek. And Debbie is a, I would say, sales process expert extraordinaire that may not really encompass everything, but Debbie has a great story and I think some important lessons for not only sales professionals, but I see it really in the corporate context as well, particularly for compliance practitioners. So Debbie, that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, Welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm
0: delighted to be with you and your great audience.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about your professional background?
0: I actually started at Texas Instruments when I was in college in Lubbock, Texas, Texas Tech University. So kind of came to the technology world by accident, if you will. In Lubbock, I married a good West Texas boy and everything there was oil banking or cotton or cattle and I didn't know any of those. And so Texas Instruments had come to town because J. Fred Busey's mother lived down the road. J. Fred was the chairman of TI. So when you worked for TI, you got in any way you could and we were waiting tables, bartending. And so when you checked out at the time clock, They had little three-by-five cards with jobs. So your friends would call and say, hey, there's a job opening here or here or here. You didn't care what it was. You just wanted to get in at TI because if you were at TI, you made a regular paycheck, you had benefits, and they paid for my education. So we loved them. And so we grew up in the technology world. After Texas Instruments, I've worked for other technology companies selling semiconductors, printed circuit boards, contract manufacturing. And in this realm of technology, I was so lucky to be able to see so many people invent incredible things, have great ideas, but then not be able to bring them to fruition because they did not understand business development or sales or how to make a business out of it. So about 20 years ago, got into the consulting world, and here we've been ever since, and now we consult technology companies, all kinds of companies. We love lawyers, lawyers and engineers, accountants, people who are very well-educated in their field, but nobody ever taught them sales or business development. So it has been fun, all kinds of people, all kinds of industries.
1: Well, I can certainly claim as a lawyer that we were taught any of those skills in law school. But I wanted to ask you a few questions about the sales process. And I see sales as communications with really the most important component being active listening. Is that your view or do you have a different view?
0: No, Tom, I am 100 percent with you there. In fact, one of the things I say to people is if you are talking more than 60 percent of the time, shut up. You're not learning anything. You're not getting any new information. So learn to ask open-ended questions and make them talk. But listening is the key to success for sales.
1: So I am the son and the uncle of multiple salesmen. And, of course, (laughs) to me, they were all super salesmen. And the downside to that, though, was I saw all the flash they did. I saw the entertaining. I saw the parties. I saw the hunting trips, the fishing trips, the deer hunting trips, the golf course courses. But what I didn't see was the hard work that they did. And to me, they were born salesmen. The reason I had that long introduction was to ask you, are BD professionals born as great salesmen or can they learn that skill from someone like you?
0: I truly believe they can learn it. Some of the things we stereotype and see in salespeople sometimes is they're very gregarious or very extroverted. And yes, there are definitely people like that, but there's many people like me that are introverted and have been extremely successful at sales. But what I really think is most important and how those people are so successful is that they care about what they're selling. They believe in it. And most importantly, they genuinely care about their clients. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. So the stereotype in North America specifically has been like Alec Baldwin's old movie, Glengarry Glen Rose, the ABCs of selling is always be closing. Well, I believe his version is bullying. That's not sales. The real ABCs of sales is to always be caring. So if you can carry on a conversation with somebody, you can communicate well, you genuinely care about them, you understand what you're doing, you're understanding the problem it solves, you'd be amazed at how great a salesperson you can be without being what you think of as a salesperson.
1: One of the things that I try to emphasize to business professionals and compliance professionals is process. And I was really intrigued by your comments around the end-to-end sales process. But more importantly, a process in and of itself is not the key. It's the process allows you to spot trouble issues, red flags, but more importantly, come up with solutions. I was wondering if you could detail a little bit more about that.
0: So when I started at Texas Instruments, you can well appreciate that as an engineering organization. So the things that were revered there were metrics, were numbers. And that held true for sales as well. So we learned very young about having a true sales forecast. So usually in a sales forecast, most companies ask their salespeople between Christmas and New Year's for a sales forecast. When are salespeople least likely to do a good job? But they show up January 1st. They have the sales forecast. Well, it's bogus from the day they did it because they didn't want to do it. And then management tries to manage to it for the next 12 months and doesn't look at it. Well, at Texas Instruments, what we learned was a forecast wasn't a once a year event. It was an everyday event. And this drove the entire sales process. It drove your time management. And you could see at any point along the way where you were good and where you were not. So, for example... You begin and you have, it's a typical pipeline, suspect, prospect, hard lead, proposals, customers. But if you've really done this and you've kept up with it every day and you are doing stellar here in August, you can see September already, that's great. But you look out and today you can see in January, you are not going to have enough business. Well, if it's August and January, you're not going to have business. You've got 12 weeks to figure something out. If you can't figure something out in 12 weeks, you've got a bigger problem. So tackling the numbers, really understanding what they are, keeping up with them every single day and knowing where you stand. Numbers are the name of the game. People hate to talk about money, but you have to talk about money and sales. So keeping up with it every single day to know where you are and where you have shortcomings.
1: Yeah, I have to tell you this is absolutely fascinating because in the compliance world, the regulators in the form of the US Department of Justice says that you have to assess your risks, you have to assess them annually, then you have to monitor those risks by looking at appropriate metrics and then adjust your risk management strategy as appropriate. So that if your risks change You change your risk management strategy. It sounds like to me that that's almost exactly what you have detailed. You assess where you are, you assess where you think you will be, but you use a metric and that metric can be a number of data points. It can be dollars and you adjust, as you said, literally on a daily basis, but it gives you a roadmap to make those adjustments going forward. That'd be a fair assessment.
0: That is exactly it. And this is critical. You know, Tom, when I go in to talk to somebody the first time, I asked, do you have any kind of forecast funnel? And I am here to tell you 90% of the time, they do not. So then I asked, do you have some idea as to what you want the number to be this year? Well, they might have an idea, but their first week assignment, if they have nothing, is to go away and prepare this. Well, imagine they said to me they wanted to do 500K this year. I don't care what the number is, that's great. But they go away for one week. They create this document off of their numbers. It's not me doing it. It's them doing it. And they come back and say, oh, my gosh, Debbie, I know about $1.2 million. And my question is, do you want to do $1.2 or 500 I'm good either way. But the truth is most people have no idea what they really have because they never really look at it in detail.
1: You know, I know people can't see this because it's an audio (laughs) podcast, but I'm raising my hand because that's me. I have never thought about what I have to do before the next week. Sometimes it's not that far. So you may hear from me later. (laughs) Let me turn to the two traditional processes, uh, sales processes. And could you talk about those and why you find that perhaps another approach which might be more appropriate?
0: So first of all, there's the very traditional process where you have the sales professional that goes out there, finds the potential client, reels them in, if you will, and gets the deal. But then that salesman turns that client over to, say, an inside sales customer support area. Well, all this time it took him to get to know the client, understand what they're doing and all, All that relationship was built with the salesperson. And then you just open a door and you toss it into somebody else and your inside salesperson, customer service doesn't have any relationship with them. And the relationship is such a key part about sales. And when I'm talking about sales, always Tom, I'm talking about the lifetime value of it, not, you know, you do business just one time. We want to establish relationships where people can come back to us again and again not every, you know, every year, but when they need us, they come. And then the second model is, is when the salesperson actually goes out, gets the business, but then is responsible for doing everything to deliver that business. Well, most salespeople who are great at going out and getting business are not great at details and getting all the little things done that have to make it get out the door. But there is a third model that I believe, and I call it the flexible sales process, where you have the sales professional is the one that's out there, and they maintain the client Mm -hmm. and the company trust, but they work closely with the inside people or the customer service people. So it's like everybody is working together versus in these silos where they may not communicate well. And I believe this serves your company the best as well as serves your clients the best because everybody's in it to win it.
1: So how can you monitor and improve your sales process? You've talked about money as, as a metric, and I certainly understand that. But what are some of the interim things that you can look at and then use that information almost continually monitoring, but more importantly, as a continuous loop process to loop that information back in? to make adjustments and improvements throughout the process?
0: Yes. So great question. So I'm not referring now to somebody who's brand new in business. Think about someone who's established that's been doing business. If that person would go look right now at the book of business they have, start at the top A to Z and ask themselves, where did this opportunity come from? Did I get it? Did somebody give it to me? What is this opportunity valued at for me thus far, both in dollars and in profit? How long did it take me to close this opportunity the first time? And have they bought from me more than once? If you can go back and assess what you already have, you might find there are similarities. For example, maybe it is it always takes three or four meetings for you to visit with somebody before they sign on the dotted line. If that's just how it is, well, then use that figure when you're forecasting what you want to do in the future. You may want business tomorrow, but if it really takes you and you have a history, your own history, that it took you 12 weeks to close each of those, you're not going to probably do something brand new tomorrow. And then in looking at who gave you a referral, if that's how the business comes, well, was that a referral, a one-time thing? Or is it somebody that would be glad to refer you again, but you just haven't said that you were looking for somebody new? So really looking at how you got what you have. Are you satisfied with the amount of time it took and the amount of money you made? And if not, adjust accordingly. Find more referral sources. Get out there. Make more sales calls maybe go after bigger dollars and less number of deals. But always when I'm talking about sales dollars, I am talking about profitable sales dollars, Tom.
1: As I mentioned when we started this podcast, one of the reasons I wanted to visit with you is I see a lot of these concepts and techniques applicable in-house for a compliance professional working inside of a corporation. And I have to say, I'm even more excited about that now because compliance professionals have a dedicated group of customers. That's called employees. Yet no one in the compliance world thinks about some of the strategies that you've talked about, particularly in terms of really what is my sales goal to my customers. They may think about other goals. We're going to roll out this communication and training, but they're not thinking about sort of steps two, three, and four, which are building that relationship, taking the information that you garner in that relationship back, And really incorporating that into your sales or service offerings, once again, from the compliance perspective. Does that make sense to you?
0: Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's like you want it to work. And if you're not looking at it overall, like, you know, this 30,000 foot view, how much money do we need for the year to sustain this? You know, what did we do last year? What do we do in the next year? We have this many people to work with. How much can each person do? If you're not doing all of that and then looking at you know what you've sold or the money that you've brought in and how that relates to each of your people, you may be leaving money on the table. You may be able to double what you're doing if you really looked at what you were doing and saw ways that you could repeat again and again and again.
1: What is accountability in the sales process?
0: <laughs> well, okay, Tom, sales secret. Salespeople have always hated that word accountability. True confession here. For 10 years, I never ever used that word in consulting. I never talked about accountability. And like I said, my background was totally in sales growing up, so I'd always had to be accountable. But it's like salespeople don't like that, so I don't talk about it. But I decided after 10 years to hire somebody who could really carry on a conversation with people to call all my clients and see how they were. I love my clients that felt like they loved me, but I wasn't sure if they would tell me if something was wrong or they were dissatisfied. So I have this person call, has great conversations, calls me back to give the report and says, you know, Debbie, before we start... I have to tell you something that each and every single one of them said, and I've never heard you say anything about it. And I said, well, what in the world is that? And she said, accountability. I said, my people talked about accountability? She said, Debbie, they said they have a meeting with you at 10 o'clock on Monday morning. They committed last Tuesday what they were going to do. They said the thought of coming to that meeting and not having the information or not having done what they said they would do, they would rather die than come to that meeting with you because, and I always say this, I'm not your wife, not your spouse. I'm not your banker. I'm not your partner. You know, you said you were going to do it. You didn't do it. Why not? And I'll be darned. And of course, I talked to all the clients after that that was one of the biggest things they hired me for was that accountability because they knew if they did it, they would get to where they wanted to go. So accountability is critical. And now we do talk
1: about it all the time, Tom. So now I'd like to turn to your book. And I first have to tell you, the title is The Field Guide to Sales. And let me first start off by saying that is one of the three greatest titles for a book ever. I don't know if that was a moment of inspiration. Or what, but that's just a a fabulous title. I may pour loin the field guide part at some point in my compliance career, but why did you write this book and who was your target audience?
0: Very good. So, a couple of things here. First, to the title, I'm one of those people, Tom, I'm real straightforward and to the point. You know, people that have to use a lot of flowery language. And I used to say, if it takes you more than three pages to put together a contract for me, we're probably not good together. We ought to be able to say what we're doing with each other and a lot less than that. So the field guide to sales is intended not to be read cover to cover, but whatever you're dealing with today, open the index, look there and find the pages that apply to what you're doing today and go there and do that. So truly a field guide and please use that. But the reason I wrote the book quick story. I had a dear friend, brilliant, brilliant in marketing and advertising that for 14 years had said to me, girl, if you were going to keep doing this consulting thing, you need to have a book. You need to be able to say you're an author. And it's just like, well, I don't want to. And I can't see myself sitting down and write a book. Invited me over for coffee. This is somebody I knew personally. So I go in the kitchen, it's got the coffee pot on, but on the kitchen table is sitting one of those old fashioned tape recorders, with the cassettes, you know, where you punch the buttons. And I said, oh, what is that for? What are the kids up to? And he said, oh, no, that's for you. So I'm pouring my copy. And I said, well, I I don't need a cassette recorder. He said, yes, you do, because today we're going to start your book. Well, I needed a paper bag. I was hyperventilating. I was mad. And he refused to look at me. He had a yellow tablet and a pen. And here's what he said. Debbie, what is the number one thing salespeople struggle with? And I'm going, I am not doing this. I'm not doing it. And he's just like, what is the number? And so finally, I'm so mad. I'm like spitting the answer at him and he's go, okay. And so what's number two? Well, he sat there and made me go through that. We came up with 35 and he said, there you go. You have 35 chapters. How hard was that? And by the way, I've already hired somebody for you that you will pay her and she will put this all together for you, he said, because I know you are never going to sit down and write this word for word. I'm like, are you kidding me? And that's how it came to be for real. And what I wanted it for when I did think about it was, yes, credibility. You know, if you have a book, you're an author, you know, people feel like that gives you credibility. Read the book first, (laughs) make your own decision. But the target audience was... I've always hated Tom when somebody came to me to work with me and they couldn't afford me, just to be blunt. That always has really bothered me to turn them away and I didn't have anything to offer them. But I thought, well, if I could put what I know, like in a book format and then I wrote 12 other workbooks, you know, like to go with it, then for 150 bucks or $25 for the book, Somebody could, if they would take the initiative, could do these things. So that was really the reason behind it. But it's ended up being so much more and an incredible door opener, both in the corporate world as well as entrepreneurs. And I will tell you, one of the best pieces of advice that lady gave me was she said from the moment I, ta- I met her and spoke to her, she said, it's going to be a hardback. I said, well, okay. And she said, we always want to attract the highest level audience we want. Well, I do corporate work, and so I want this to be for corporate people. I want it to be for individuals. So she said, it is going to be a hardback, and it has been. So it's been a great, great thing to do, nerve-wracking, but great.
1: Well, you detailed several of the reasons I advocate people write a book, but let me ask you about one other. Did it force you or perhaps even allow you to really crystallize your thinking and put it in a format that was not only easier for the consumer, i.e., the reader, but now you have really thought through in a rigorous way your protocol and your program. and, And did the exercise of writing the book actually make you a better salesperson?
0: It absolutely did, Tom, because when you talk about that crystallizing, you know, when people would say, Deb, you know, how do you do this? And I'd go, okay, well, da 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 Well, you know, that's from 25 years experience doing sales. Well, how did you come to that? Well, I don't know, but do that. I know it will work kind of thing. Well, that's not helpful for a lot of people in the way they think. So doing this and making me really look at what do I really do? How do I really think? How do I proceed from this to this? You've nailed it. It crystallized everything. And it also, we feel like, huh, well, I guess not everybody can do this, you know, because that was the other thing. It's not, I wasn't discrediting myself, but I always thought, you know, well, if you wanted to, you could do this. Well, there truly was a lot to it. And this really helped me see it. And now I I feel like I've been much better for my clients having had this experience.
1: Let me turn now to another subject, which is the C-Suite Network. We're both members of the C-Suite Network. In fact, we met through the C-Suite Network. And I wanted to ask, why did you join and what are some of the benefits the C-Suite Network has brought to you.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be part of C-Suite with you. I'd known Jeffrey Hazlett for eight or nine years, but had never been part of the C-Suite. But during the pandemic, my business always, you know, it mostly is on the phone, you know, one-on-one with people or, you know, training a group perhaps in person. Now we can all do it on Zoom. But I have always enjoyed the people I had been around when Jeffrey Hazlett was around. And so Bill Wallace had shared with me again about this group. You ought to think about it. Well, during the pandemic, it's like I had time, you know, I didn't have to dress up, go anywhere, do anything. And I had time. So I listened in a couple of weeks. One of the things I loved the most, Tom, was that it's a global community. And I do have clients in other countries, but, you know, not that many. And being with this global community every week and hearing how people think and how things are going there, I just feel like it has lifted me and that I know more and I understand more. And I think it makes it better for those that I serve having a better global perspective. At the same time, the community is really a community. I love that I could reach out to you and say, Tom, I know you don't know me, but I'm part of C-suite, you know, I'm in Dallas, Texas, and I see that you're doing this, wondered if I could ask you a couple of questions, and I suspect you would say yes. So being a part of a community, a fraternity, whatever you want to call it, where you have all these resources that, you know, they can call you or you can call them. I just think is powerful in this day and time because there's no way we can know everything. So I have really loved the people I've met and also people I knew already were in it and I've got to know them even better through this organization.
1: So during the pandemic I had a podcast called Coronavirus and Compliance, mm. Compliance and Coronavirus where I focused on coronavirus issues and I interviewed Jeffrey in March of 2020 and I remember as we came on together he had just finished taking an incredibly deep breath and said, Tom, I made payroll this month. And I thought, you know, if Jeffrey Hale is worried about making payroll, maybe my problems aren't as big as I thought. But the second thing was, and I have told him this several times, the pivot that C-Suite made because of the pandemic. Previous to pandemic, it was largely or almost all Jeffrey going around doing speeches. And he's a Hall of Fame speaker for the National Speaker Association, fabulous speaker. But that type of information really was not, I didn't have access to it unless I happened to be at a conference where he was speaking. And when he pivoted during the pandemic to his daily presentations, the webinars, the interactive forums, that became information that I could consume literally every day because he was doing it every day. And it became A much more powerful tool for me. And I was able to tell several people about it and they all joined because we had access to fabulous information that we frankly did not have access to before. Once again, because a C suite had to pivot. And the lesson I learned from that was that sometimes you can run towards a crisis. And if you're prepared to, I don't want to say take advantage of it, but if you can see the opportunities there, I'm firmly convinced that if a door closes, the universe opens another one. You just have to be able to see it and have the courage to walk through it. And that's what I saw Jeffrey and C-Suite do, pivot to an almost completely different business model. And for me as a consumer, as a member, it was a much more powerful business model as well.
0: Absolutely. And the word you use, access, I think that's the bottom line right there. One of the things I learned about Jeffrey specifically during this, but all the rest of his team as well, If I had a question, I could just drop him a quick text or an email or whatever, and he would get back to me. I thought, I love this. His team is that way. It's like nothing is ever a problem. If I don't know, I don't know. But let's see who else does know. You know, you're wanting to do this. I'm not quite sure how, but who do we know that could help us with it? It's like everything is possible with this group, and I love that.
1: We're also members of the Lone Star Council. I was wondering if you would say a few words about either what it's meant to you or how you've used the Lone Star Council.
0: Very good. So the Lone Star Council, for those who don't know, are people in Texas that are part of the C-suite. It's like, we need our own group. Isn't that so typical of Texans? And for me, I have been in this community a long time. I lived in Houston for seven years, that community, done business in Austin for many years. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of the people that I've known in my career have retired, you know, and they've gone on. Well, I'm still doing what I do and love it and would like to continue to do it for a long time still. So felt like, even though I do know a lot of people in the Texas community, that I really wanted to be with people who were excited about new things and doing new things and really really wanting stuff to happen in Texas. And I have found that there. I absolutely love it. And the other thing too, about being in Texas, I have been able to meet some of the people in person, which I'm a big people person. So I love that. But yeah, I think Lone Star Council is only just beginning. And maybe like you said, for C-suite, the way it's pivoted during the pandemic, it's done extraordinary in the last year, but perhaps it has barely begun.
1: Let me turn to a few Issues in that veiled land of the future. (laughs) Let me start by asking, has the last year, yes and a half, maybe so of COVID-19 changed your approach? And I don't mean how you might do a virtual training as opposed to live and in-person as you might have before, but has it changed the approach to sales that you have seen or, or you're advocating now?
0: So let me back up a minute. On March 13th, 2020, I do a program for Goldman Sachs called 10,000 Small Businesses. And I do it for them locally and nationally as well, helping facilitate the sales and marketing part of it. That day, I had just finished an in-person class all day, 12 hours, no windows, locked room. I mean, people just engaged with what they were doing. You know, I was in heaven. I get out of there. The truth is, I'm exhausted, but I'm so exhilarated. Well, this building where they have this is downtown Dallas. So I live in Plano. So I'm thinking, well, I got an hour and 15 to get home tonight. So just turn up the music and kind of decompress. Well, I start driving. There is no traffic. The tollway, eight lanes, no traffic. I don't know. There was just something intuitive kind of sick. It kind of made me think 9-11, you know, like, Something has happened, and I don't know what it is. So I called my husband and said, what is going on? There's like nobody out here. He said, you just need to get home. You know, they're shutting everything down. Well, that weekend, I reflected upon 9-11, because after 9-11, I lost 85% of my business in three days, and the rest not too long after But the fact of the matter is, here we are 20 years later, and I'm still in business and still going strong. So in my mind, I thought, well, I don't know what all this means, but I guess it'll all be gone on Monday, and we'll figure it out. And so that was kind of my attitude. But I walked in my office on Monday morning, and you know how those crazy people, you know, they call and leave, you know, do you need insurance, you know, that kind of thing. So I have all these messages on my phone. I'm like, good grief, who got a hold of my number this weekend? Well, some of them were yucky people, but most of them were people going, Deb, call me. We have never sold virtually. How are we going to do this? We only sell in person. And basically that was the gist of all those calls. I have been busier since the coronavirus started than I was before because people feel like the world has shifted. The fact of the matter is We sell virtually like we sell in person, you know, all the same etiquette, the rules, you know, the good things and all of that. But it is not the same as being with people one on one. So where I see things will change, you know how if we were to meet one another and we were going to work together, we would say, do you prefer that I call you, email you, text you? How would you prefer me to communicate with you? You would tell me and that is the way in which I would communicate with you. And now what I tell people is the same thing. You need to ask people, are we going to continue this virtually or will in-person be okay or will it be a hybrid? We really need to know what our clients want because there's going to be people that do not want to do virtually at all ever again. That's fine because there's plenty of customers that will want the same. Or maybe you don't ever want to be in person again. You figured out virtual, you love it. But I believe it's a conversation we have to have with each and every prospect and client to understand how they want to work going forward and then do that.
1: Where do you see sales five years or maybe even 10 years down the road?
0: You know how we have all this great technology now and data, 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 data. I think we will continue to have that in spades. I really do. But I think salespeople are maybe going to finally learn how to use that data. Things like artificial intelligence and not be afraid of them anymore. To really use it to enhance what they do and to do better at what they do. In the past, Even in large corporations that have had great technology for years, many salespeople, they're just like, yeah, we have a system, but I don't use it unless they make me do something and all. They really haven't availed themselves to that resource. So in the next five years, I think there'll be more and more of it, and they're making it more user friendly so people will use it and also taking time to educate them to understand it, to make it work for them. So I I see that continuing to be the biggest thing.
1: Debbie, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but this has been all I could have asked for and much, much more. So I wanted to thank you. But before we leave, I was wondering if listeners wanted any more information on you, the sales company, or really any of the topics that we've touched upon in this podcast. Where could they go?
0: Yes, well, you can visit me on LinkedIn, Debbie Marizik, M R A Z E K. There are two Debbie Morizics on there. The other one is like a genius researcher. That one's not me. I'm the sales company, and my website is www.the-sales-company spelled out.com. When I was starting my business, I wanted salescompany.com. And the guy who had it wanted $3 million for it. So my marketing graphic designer said, well, if we put dashes in there, then that'll work. And so it dash is the-sales-company.com. But send me a message on LinkedIn. Reach out to me. I would love to hear from you.
1: Well, Debbie, as I said, this has been, a, I think, a fascinating episode. And I hope that we can continue this conversation.
0: I do too, Tom. Thank you again so much for inviting me and I will look forward to seeing you somewhere in person soon. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.